Before we begin, I want to let you know about these two Stride Social events next week. The first is NYC Tech Debates next Tuesday, August 14th at 6.30 p.m. Featuring Brian Guthrie, Director of Engineering at Meetup.com, and Rick Martinez, former VP of Engineering at Plated, discussing full stack versus specialization. The same week is Coders Who Climb on Thursday, August 16th at Brooklyn Boulders in Queensbridge at 6 p.m. To learn more, check out the events section at strideNYC.com slash events. With that being said, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to The Rabbit Hole, the Definitive Developers Podcast in fantabulous Chelsea, Manhattan. I'm your host, Michael Nunez. Our co-host today, Dave Anderson. And today, we'll be talking about authorization and how to keep people out of our websites, I guess. Yeah. Right? And yeah, we'll figure out also like maybe what the difference between authentication and authorization is. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully. By so, the end, we but, will also talk about those things. Yeah. We might need some help on this though. <laughs> Definitely. And whoa, we have a guest. <laughs> Speaking of which, we have a guest. We have Roberto Pedroso. Roberto, how's it going? Yeah, it's going great. Happy to be here. Awesome. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself before we dive into the topic of authorization? Sure. Again, I'm Roberto. I'm a lead engineer at Jure. I work mostly on our backend systems. I do a lot of API design work. Uh, We have a GraphQL API that exposes a lot of data, and we have to be very mindful of authorization. I've been at Jure for about two years now. Before that, I was uh, programming alarm monitoring systems. Very Which stressful kind of programming. Probably needed some authorization there too. Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> just a tad bit. Just a little. Huh? No room for error, maybe. No. <laughs> nope. Cool. Yeah, so I, I feel like the terms of like authorization and authentication get thrown out a lot and they both sound very similar. It it seems like it's uh easy to mix them up. Poor choice of words. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the difference is uh, authentication answers the question, who is the user who is using my site, my API, my service? Authorization answers the question, what can they do? What can they see? Mm. What can they change? It's a who versus what, essentially? Yeah, it's, you know, somebody wants to use your website, but then you have to figure out what resources they're capable of using so that you can't trigger an alarm on somebody else's alarm system or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we don't want that. In the example, as you mentioned before, someone, a user can visit their own piece of information on a website Mm -hmm. and they're authorized to do that. But an admin may be authorized to visit multiple users or all the users Mm -hmm. as well. And the authentication part of it is checking hey are you that user mm-hmm. right Got it. like or like a example like facebook like i can go to i can log into facebook that's great but i may not be able to go to the admin panel for you know strides facebook page and like edit things unless i'm like granted the auth- authorization to do that so your authentication server says this person has id 347 and they are an admin user and then your authorization layer says, well, he's an admin user. Great. Let him change whatever he wants. Mm. And I'm like, thanks. Thanks, system. What are some examples of authentication uh, strategies? Like, Yeah, there's a few different authentication schemes. A lot of frameworks have something built in. So an example is uh, if you're using Django, Django has a built-in auth scheme. It has a session store service that'll store your authentication session. It's even got a strategy pattern built in so you can define whether that's stored in memory, whether it's stored in the database, in some sort of volatile cache like Redis. 
And then there's sort of more enterprise solutions. You've got um, the OAuth 2 protocol. It's pretty common. Uh, you can be your own provider or you can allow your users to use something like Google's OAuth provider or Facebook's OAuth provider to authenticate against your service. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or like LDAP or something like that. Exactly. In the, in the yeah. truly, the yeah. truly enterprise. <laughs> yeah, single sign-on. A lot of organizations have to provide that if you serve enterprise clients. Otherwise, their resource management is a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What What do you prefer developers use? I think that when organizations reach a point of maturity, OAuth two becomes the right path forward. As most services, especially if you are in the SaaS space, grow. You know, you'll have whatever your platform is, right? But then you're going to want to expose APIs to users. Maybe you're going to have a uh, microservice architecture or some more general service-oriented architecture, and you've got lots of services that need to interact with each other. OAuth 2 gives you the capabilities to define an authentication scheme that is flexible to most needs. Mm. We can go with this, maybe, but like, I'm, I'm curious, like OAuth 2... Is that the same scheme that's used for Google authentication? Like if I if I'm using a Google profile or Facebook mm-hmm. authentication, like so that's that's all like right. So in the realm of OAuth. Yep, exactly. In OAuth terminology, uh, they are providers. So they provide an authorization server, which is confusingly named um, <laughs> for authorization. It's, it's a little bit of both what OAuth provides for you. So yeah, you log in with your Google profile and you're logging in. Essentially, you usually start your auth flow on the service you're using, which is not Google or Facebook or one of these providers. And they will send you to Google or Facebook. Mm-hmm. You will log in and then Google or Facebook sends some metadata back to the client that you're using. And that allows them to continuously authorize against your user profile, whatever information they requested. Now that we've got our authentication, we got our little token back, whatever it may be. What do we what do we do with that? Like how do we mm-hmm. know what we can do with that or be authorized to do things? Yeah, this is where the authorization tier of your application comes into play. So let's take the example, a very common example of a REST API. In a REST API, I have resources. That's the core component of a REST API. A resource usually represents some object from your domain, let's say users. Let's say I have an endpoint that lets me list users uh, and then get details about particular users. And then you can add users or remove users um, or change details about them. Authorization determines what I what of those steps I'm allowed to take? What resources can I see? What resources can I change? Mm. So to go back to the admin example, right? The admin will typically have grant powers. You might have the ability to create users only be a feature of the admin if you're running like a SaaS platform yeah. instead of a consumer-driven one. Rather than like a self-created user. Like, like a self-serve you know, like a Facebook where obviously you don't want an admin to have to create every all <laughs> billion user accounts. Oh, Mark, man. please. Help. <laughs> please. Yeah. I mean, I guess like that, that example of the users is mm-hmm. something that you definitely don't want to mess up because that can be get really sensitive very quickly, especially if you have like credit card data or something like that. Oh, yeah. Mm. There was an incident actually within the last couple of years with uh, Panera where Panera had they suffered from vulnerability called insecure direct object references. So if you imagine a get endpoint like slash users slash 
ID, right? So you know, I can visit my user profile at panera.com slash user slash four. Well, what happens if I put five in? Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think you're a hacker if you do that. Uh, oh, like that yes. uh, they're going to backtrace me and call the cyber police. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Nice. So that's, uh, that's a type of authorization problem yeah. where you have a resource in REST parlance that you did not properly check whether or not the current authenticated user has the right to see that resource and exposed all kinds of things, names, emails, addresses, private information. Oh, man. So I guess the honor system isn't really a good authorization. I mean, maybe if you're running some kind of website, right? (laughs) (laughs) If you go the blockchain route, right, then like everything is public. So yeah, that's true. Although hopefully like if there's any like private information, it's somehow like obscured or encrypted and obfuscated that's eventually going to be a problem right somebody's going to put private information that's not supposed to be exposed on the blockchain and then what do you do there's no recourse yeah delete it i literally can't (laughs) this is distributed to thousands of different computers and they all maintain this cache yep permanent graffiti yep Oh man! <laughs> Should be like Bobby is a jerk. <laughs> In the blockchain there you go. forever, forever. Yeah, that's the term of my Ethereum contract. Is you have to type "Bobby's a jerk" into this text box, <laughs> and then I will send you five dollars. There you go. Oh man, oh, brutal. So, like, what's what's a good way to establish like what those rules are for mm-hmm. who who can access what? How can we like make sure that we're following this 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 best practices yeah so lots of different frameworks provide some sort of built-in functionality or some sort of plug-in functionality Uh, i can speak to django specifically as an example it has the concept of actions so these correspond pretty closely to what we think of as like restful actions like viewing uh, actually viewing was just added today in django 2.1's release they didn't have that as a, an available permission before Oops. nice <laughs> yes. but they did they did manage create and edit and destroy so Classic django's built-in will essentially store you can say like explicitly user one two three can edit create destroy or read these kinds of objects or this subset of this kind of object. I know for Rails, there's similar frameworks. I remember, um, was it CanCan from way yeah. back in the day? Is this that can, the whole thing? Can or CanCanCan? Oh, Dude, no. Just, um, just the derivative what, of three can, levels? Can. Yeah, there's CanCanCan. Can, CanCanCan can do that? I don't know. It's I, I always find that hilarious. A lot of Rails applications use CanCan or... Yeah. What kind of framework does... Or what, what kind of model does that follow? Is it pretty similar, like... Create, read, update, delete. Very similar. Or it's like like can access or can read, like mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Yeah. And okay. um, you can choose like the, the, the role that a person may have and what they can do given mm-hmm. that role. And sometimes the framework might not cut it. So one way that I think that Django's solution doesn't scale very well is that it stores one row in the database like per relation, right? So if I have a user and I want this user to be able to edit like all user objects or rather not all user objects, some large subset of them, it'll store like one row per relation there, uh, which scales really poorly if you have a lot of data. Yeah. Oh, wow. 
So, so like can... all those line items on those orders. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, <laughs> well, this line item you can definitely add. And, <laughs> and this one too. And this one. Yep. And so <laughs> oh, if you've got a client with 100,000 orders, each of which has 10 line items, then uh, you're looking at a really, really, really big table with really slow reads. Wow. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. storage is cheap, so yeah. <laughs> just scale it up. Just get uh, a bigger box. Uh, slow or, query performance, though. No one's going <laughs> to like that. Yeah, I, I guess there's probably a better alternative to that. Yeah, so now you're looking at something like role-based or rule-based authorization instead. So instead of explicitly storing relationships of who can do what thing, you have some sort of rule that defines who can do it. So maybe you have a user ID on your order. I mean, you probably have that anyways, right? So you just say, if the line item which belongs to this order is being viewed by the user with the same ID as the user who created that order, then it's cool. In fact, they're allowed to change that line item. Or if that user is an admin user. At least that can get complicated pretty quickly, though. It can, uh, as you know very well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes. Uh, And with complications come the potential for vulnerabilities. Mm. You know, the more complicated it gets, the more like you are to slip. One of the rules that I really like is that you should incorporate authorization directly into the layer in which you do data access. So I've seen systems where your domain model itself is responsible for enforcing this. But I think that makes accidents too likely. If you fetch data that you don't want exposed, then you're at risk. Right. Uh, you're, you're already like one step away from yep. doing a bad thing to that data. Exactly. <laughs> don't even read it into memory if you can avoid it. So yeah, I guess like at Azure, what we're doing mm-hmm. on, on the client is like, uh, you know, by, by account and user who the viewing context like mm-hmm. you know do, do you have the ability to read or update this mm-hmm. set of data with your it's extra complicated right because you have considerations like where are they viewing it from are using the mobile app or using the web app oh um, yeah that's true and uh you know there you have a user but which account of their many accounts are they using it can get pretty complicated pretty fast <laughs> i like the django rules library personally for django projects it lets you encapsulate this logic in predicates that can be reused to create permissions like can-can style can view for mm-hmm. a specific object. But rather than doing a database call, uh, you pass in the relevant objects and it enforces the business logic. I, I've like heard the phrase of like security is like everyone's responsibility. Mm-hmm. Is there any way that like I can help? like ensure that i'm doing the right thing (laughs) yeah i mean you got to bake this right into the very fabric of your organization so there's a couple of ways that i've managed this in the past yeah so you got to bake it into the very fabric of your organization really helpful tool that i like slack put out their internal checklist tool that they use for their internal software development life cycle Checklists are a really helpful way of making sure that certain security concerns always get followed. So Slack's internal checklist asks the question for every API you've changed, uh, for every object you exposed, for every page or whatever that you added, did you make sure that only the correct users are able to access it? And by asking your developers to go through line by line through this checklist and verify that they thought about this possibility, it's less likely that you're going to miss something. Yeah. yeah. And then also like double checking it when you have a reviewer of looking course. at it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess if checklists are good enough for NASA to get a rocket into space, they should be good enough to make sure that you're nailing down your API. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
It's just important to make sure that everyone in your organization is aligned on how you do security and has a defined process for how you do it. I think it's also helpful to have special review processes for API changes in particular. Mm -hmm. This is less of a checklist and more of a let's get everyone into a room to make sure we understand what the possible edge cases are. What are the ways this could go wrong? What would be the catastrophic bad case that we know we've got to explicitly test to avoid? Can we write automated tests to make sure that we're not doing this? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I think especially with like getting new developers into the mm-hmm. organization, if you're trying to scale the team quickly, that can be a useful resource when it's not always possible to have like a face-to-face discussion. Although maybe that should be part of the onboarding. It's probably part of the onboarding too. (laughs) Yeah, there's nothing like a checklist to make sure that everyone's aligned, even new developers, especially when it's automatically applied to your pull request or just a formal part of the process like Slack solution is. Yeah, yeah, we can definitely uh, link that in the show notes as well. It's the Slack engineering blog, moving fast and securing things entry. Which sounds a little bit identical to uh, Facebook's slogan. Moving fast, securing things. Canary <laughs> <laughs> okay. got the moving fast part, right? <laughs> yeah. Just that, the go- fast moving bread. <laughs> <laughs> straight, <laughs> out the, straight out the oven. <laughs> straight out the oven. You're going to get burned. Yeah. <laughs> Were there any repercuss- repercussions? Were there any repercussions, or say, like consequences that Panera had to pay a fine or like face or anything like that? Or was it like, oh snap, we got to change this quick before everyone gets <laughs> everyone's data? Probably not. Uh, I didn't hear about any sort of legal consequences for this leak, and this is a recurring problem uh, that, at least in the United States, we haven't found a good way to deal with. Lots of data exposure. What was the recent one with people's health insurance information that occurred? I forget the name of the company. Or it was one of the credit rating agencies. That oh, like revealed Equifax. The like, Equifax. Yeah, Equifax. There's the one. Oh yeah. You, know, you think there's going to be any consequences there? Oh um, yeah. No. No. <laughs> Definitely no. Not. They revealed data on like every American citizen. What are you going to do now? Yeah. Uh, exactly. Um, <laughs> well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not the lesson to take away here. That you shouldn't care about it because <laughs> you should. <laughs> With large organizations like that, where they're immobile or people aren't hearing the news, it might not have effect. But especially if you're like a smaller company, you're a SaaS platform and you're a growing company instead of like a large established hegemonic company. Right. Uh, now you're at risk, right? There's real risk that consumers will look at you mistrustfully. They won't trust your product anymore. Right. Good luck getting that enterprise customer to resign uh, after you revealed all of their personal data to the world, especially if it's trade secrets. Yeah, oh, it's yeah. not going to end well. Right. And no. then, and then, Vice versa, because your application is growing, there are more people who are looking for your vulnerabilities and try to find ways to get into your data. Exactly. I mean, anybody who's run a web server for a while has noticed people trying to automatically connect to their SSH ports, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's some kind of funny stuff. I I remember talking to some of the ops engineers at a previous client I was at and there were people trying to connect to the PHP admin portal oh, using yep, the default yep. creds, <laughs> but it was hosted in Rails. So there's like no yep. way they could possibly succeed, but there's just some script kitty, like, you know, yep. every domain away. every domain on the planet probably gets a hit to slash WP dash admin. WP slash admin. Yeah. And I mean, that, that works too. Like I, oh, I, had, yeah. I had a friend who had a WordPress site and it, it got horribly hacked. It was deeply and horribly hacked, and he could not fix it. 
like they were in there the oh russians gosh, were all the, the way Ru- in there the russians the russians they were i think they were russians yeah not too well, stereotypical yeah. <laughs> um, yeah if you haven't updated your word to us press side in a week you've probably been hacked <laughs> <laughs> oh man so i think before we're talking about like authentication of resources mm-hmm. or authorization of resources authorization. with uh with rest but you know graphql is all the rage like that that's uh, uh really a different beast where mm-hmm. it's maybe a little more complicated it's uh, definitely a little more complicated at least with rest you're dealing with just one resource at a time right right but with graphql you have nested resources you can have these in rest too nothing's stopping you but it's uh the reality of every GraphQL application. So the question becomes like, okay, how is a user getting to this particular type of object? And the way that GraphQL resolution works, you can't depend on the contextual way that the node was resolved, right? How did I get to a user? Did I get to it through an order? Did I get to it through the user list endpoint? So that gets tricky. That's one of the reasons that I find moving the data access or rather putting your authorization checks into your data access process, very helpful. Um, Because in GraphQL, you're loading resources based on some sort of ancestor resource in a query, and those connections can get very complicated. If you try to implement authorization at each point where you potentially return an object type, you're going to miss something eventually, right? Somebody's mm-hmm. going to open a PR and they're going to forget. Right. Yeah. There's many different ways you can get in there, especially if you're implementing like the relay, a really compliant API where you can access the node directly. Right. So then every single object is an entry point yep. and every single path from an object to another object is also an entry point. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, just graphs, graphs, graphs of graphs. <laughs> We find it helpful in our data access layer to just have, uh, and this actually we was inspired by Facebook's approach. Facebook, if you look at early versions of the relay specification, it always calls for the root of your query to include an object called viewer. And they ended up getting rid of this in the relay spec, not because it wasn't helpful, but because it was Facebook specific. Mm. And the reason that it's Facebook specific is that they always have in their data access layer, the ability to accept a viewer as a parameter. So whenever they fetch objects of any kind, they pass along the viewer and the data access routine uses that viewer in order to contextualize and authorize the payload that is returned by that function. Mm. So we implemented that at Jure and I think it's been helpful, a helpful pattern for making it easy to avoid authorization mishaps. Yeah, it definitely becomes clear pretty quickly when mm. you know, you're looking at PR and they're not using the the request context then it's like wait okay yeah. let's 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 look at this deeper the next step is to make it automatic so nobody can forget to make that call <laughs> that's the dream <laughs> the dream but, the but dream. until then there's a checklist there's yeah. a checklist yeah so uh, besides you know all these uh, security vulnerabilities with authorization are there any other nightmares that i should be worried about plenty of them the best resource i know if you're being considered about security the oasp website org. they maintain their top 10 list which is updated every year or so it includes their list of the most pressing most common most problematic security vulnerabilities uh, we mentioned insecure direct object references at panera mm-hmm. uh, that's an example that commonly makes their list it includes things like sql injection cross-site request forgery cross-site scripting 
So in addition to documenting the kinds of things you should be scared of, they give you a list of techniques for how to mitigate those kinds of problems. Very helpful. Sanitize your data. Sanitize your data. You don't want Bobby drop tables. (laughs) Little little Bobby tables. Little Bobby tables dropping all over the place. Oh, man. And, you know, I'm looking at the site right now and it's it's actually pretty nice. There's like some good examples and a couple of pictures even, you know. Oh, wow. Yeah. So oh, how, of how it can fail? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's, uh, there's this one picture where there's these threat agents on the left and they're little little stick figure dudes. <laughs> <laughs> and they're uh, shooting these attack vectors, which are red lines, and they're attacking your stuff. <laughs> you got to secure your stuff. All so your base are belong to them. Yep. <laughs> through the vectors. Through the vectors. <laughs> awesome. Cool. Yeah. Well, it sounds like that's a, that's at least 10 more podcast episodes. That we have. <laughs> <laughs> Any of them is his own topic, but yeah. uh, give it a read. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Awesome. Do we have any teach and learns today we want to share? Yeah. I, I, I feel like I am uh, humbled and learning and relearning things yeah. <laughs> pretty frequently this week. So one thing that I keep on forgetting is like how to properly mock a class in Python. I've done it before and I just don't have to do it often. And when I do it, I forget that in order to mock something, you need to be mocking the class at the place that you're importing it, not at the place it's coming from. Oh. So like if I have like a service that I'm mocking in my API, I'm not going to mock it at like, you know, API.services.com thing i don't care about and i want to mock i'm going to mock it at you know api.schema dot thing i don't care about and i want to mock because it's uh, technically in the scope of of that thing that it we're we're trying to patch it oh okay which uh is confusing i wish was better like there are many <laughs> things about python testing that yeah are not friendly to the beginner like, mm, i uh, agree that's one of the cases where the implementation details of your code affect how it's how its interface works because it essentially monkey patches the module that you're mocking for at the point where the file gets it or the package or function or whatever gets imported right like once once i i read this caveat and i remember it then i'm like oh yeah it makes sense but i i, I don't know why it doesn't stick <laughs> so hopefully hopefully in another six months i will not be having the same one <laughs> <laughs> I am constantly learning or relearning things in JavaScript. I like you mentioned with Python testing, JavaScript. Why do I forget these things and then relearn them? Like, oh yeah, that's how that works. So just dealing with uh, what they call dumb components, uh, I realized that you can convert a lot of your dumb components to be stateless components that just returns the function and it's just like a fat arrow it's really pretty in react and react yes oh, yeah. so in react you have the your dumb component and it's just if it's just going to render something then you can have it use the fat arrow you don't have to extend component or anything of that nature you just return the thing and i always seem to forget that but i learned again and i've learned whenever possible just go stateless all the time Oh yeah. And what does that mean? Get that state out. If you don't, if you're not dealing with any React lifecycle methods, then the component can be stateless. Yeah, so. just, just get that out there. No class components. If yeah. you can avoid it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Unless you're dealing with like component, like component will mount, component did mount, which are are actually being deprecated. That's another thing I learned. And React <laughs> and React uh, 16, they're deprecating uh, component did mount, and they're actually renaming the function to unsafe, like capital <laughs> unsafe. Get out of here! Yeah, and uh, wow. it's like uh, I think it's for the com- the did mount. It's like component did mount, component did unmount. There's a there's a list. We should put that on the <laughs> yeah. on the show notes because it's pretty interesting that they're and they're actually adding new uh, lifecycle functions too, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I mean the the functional component it just looks really nice. Just like oh, it's just like an arrow function and a thing. It yeah. looks really cool, but it, it doesn't really do anything very different from the class component yet but i think that they're eventually going to add some kind of optimization yeah where it'll be like a pure component right. where it'll hopefully be faster but that's you know, the, that's we'll the dream that's we'll the just, dream we'll just wait for dan abenoff to let us know what's up <laughs> the dream right there roberto is there anything you want to plug before you wrap this up yeah uh if you liked hearing about the graphql portion of our talk and you're a python or django developer or just want to know more on August 14th, Jura is going to be hosting the Django NYC meetup, and I'll be giving a talk on sort of getting started with GraphQL and Django. Uh, come. It'll be great. It'll be fun. We can talk afterwards if you have any questions about that or authorization. I'm happy to talk about those things whenever. Cool. Sounds good. I'm excited for that. Follow us now on Twitter at Radio Free Rabbit so we can keep the conversation going. Like what you hear? Give us a five-star review and help developers just like you find their way into the rabbit hole. And never miss an episode. Subscribe now however you listen to your favorite podcast. On behalf of our producer extraordinaire, William Jeffries, and my amazing co-host, Dave Anderson, and me, your host, Michael Nunez, thanks for listening to The Rabbit Hole.